Hey, it's Juliana. I wanted to mention that the episode you're about to hear was recorded back in March before the coronavirus epidemic. It's our kickoff for season two, where Catherine and I give the backstory to K-Pod and talk a little bit about who we are. We have a few more episodes that we recorded before the crisis, which we'll be rolling out over the next several weeks. After that, we'll be switching to remote interviews. I also wanted to give thanks to our friend, creative director Eddie Lita, who redesigned our new logo for K-Pod. As you'll hear, he's actually the one who reintroduced the two of us after almost 20 years. So thank you so much, Eddie. Okay, here's the episode. Take care, everyone. Hello, and welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean-Americans and arts and culture from Korean-American Story. I'm Katherine Hong, a writer and editor. And I'm Juliana Sohn, a photographer. It's a new year and a new season, season two of K-Pod. And we thought that we'd kick off the season a different way um, by actually introducing ourselves, which we never did last season. We always meant to record an episode where we introduced ourselves. And some of you might be wondering, who the hell are we? So we thought that we'd ask H.J. Lee, who's the executive director of Korean American Story and the godfather of this podcast, and also the man who's with us at every single recording, to interview us for a change. So here's H.J. Hi, H.J. Hi, guys. <laughs> well, this is an unusual situation. Yes. We're recording in H.J.'s basement in Westchester. <laughs> I think it would be really nice for people to get to know you guys a little bit better. So you could do a short intro about how you guys met. I know that when we, Juliana and I spoke about uh, starting a podcast, first person you mentioned was Catherine. Yes. So you could talk about why you did that and how did you guys meet? And let's go from there. So I got in touch with HJ and I sent him a very simple email that said, have you ever considered doing a podcast? Because I thought he would be the one to do it. He had the background, the resources, but also this is where the organization excels. And he sent back an email that said, yeah, I've been wanting to do a podcast and I think you'd be a great host. I've got a great idea. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to do it. <laughs> and uh, um, I did not think that this was something that I wanted to do on my own. Well, at first, I didn't think I could do it at all. But um, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I want a partner in crime. And I know just the right person. And uh, I called Catherine and um, we had lunch with HJ and we just brainstormed and came up with this idea. Yeah. Juliana and I listened to a lot of podcasts, but we'd never done one. And we love the idea of interviewing people from the arts, musicians, writers. Yeah. So Catherine and I have been friends for ages. We first met in 1986 when we were in high school and we were both attending the summer program at Phillips Exeter Academy. Like good Korean American children, we were sent there. <laughs> to get a leg up and maybe get into good colleges by our parents. So it was an academic summer session. Juliana and I met and we proceeded to become pen pals in the old fashioned sense of 
we wrote letters to each other because I grew up in Long Island. Juliana grew up in New Jersey. So we wrote physical letters. And one time we convinced Juliana's parents to drive her to my house. And you actually came to visit me. Okay. Do you remember so, that? That was like a long thing. trip. I don't remember any of this. Are you sure it was me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I have letters from you somewhere. Yeah. We were pen pals and we stayed in touch. We saw each other at least, I think, just one time. I don't we remember ever going to Great Neck. Maybe it was you. It might have been that other Korean girl I met. No, I think it was you. You'll have to ask your parents. But I think I, it was you. I do you remember will. writing letters? I do. And I think at some point I may have kept those letters. I'm not sure. Future episode, we will read those letters. <laughs> so what I do remember was that I was miserable during my stay at Exeter. I had a really hard time socially. And then maybe the final week or two of a six-week program, I realized that the girls in my dorm were really, really nice. And that I always wondered years later, like what became of you? Because in hindsight, I thought she was really great. And I Aww. wish I was better friends with her. And I wish I'd kept in touch. And uh, um, I think it was, I don't know how many years later, but I was reading a an issue of Harper's Bazaar and you were listed as a contributor. And it had said that it was your final issue and you were leaving. Wow. And, and I thought, I don't oh my gosh, this is like ships passing in the night because it's like I almost was able to connect with her because I could have gotten in touch with Harper's Bazaar and asked to speak with you, but you were no longer there. Gosh, I don't recall that they would have written that about me when I left. Really? <laughs> but I did work there. But um, we should explain that we did connect maybe a few years after that, when I was working at W Magazine and I was hanging out in the art department and the design director, Eddie Lida, had a photo of a woman on his desk hanging out with her kids. And I recognized the woman as my old friend from Exeter Summer School. And turned out that Juliana Son was a photographer who shot for W Magazine and was friends with Eddie. Suddenly we're um, back in touch when we both had kids. She was working as a successful photographer and I was working in fashion magazines. And um, ever since then, we've really been in touch because we've had kids around the same age. Yeah, yeah. We're both living in Manhattan. And then um, about a year ago, we started doing this podcast together. So you guys never, you both worked for W around the same time, but you never actually worked together. No. We never worked on a story together. We never together, worked on a single story together. I rarely met any photographers when I was there because it's all done very separately. So yeah. even if Juliana had shot a story that I edited, I would have never met her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all assigned by a separate person. Yeah, it's actually very... You're not really working here. Yeah, around. it's very interesting because they don't want... I've been on shoots with editors and they almost see photographers as competition for time. I remember one of the first shoots I did for W and it was like one of the first shoots I'd ever done. I was photographing Rebecca Miller, um, the director, and uh, the writer showed up and she said, oh, well, you know, that you can interview... I can interview first or you could take pictures. And I, and I was like, well, you can interview. That's fine. You know, and then afterwards I'll take the pictures. And uh, she hogged all the time. So the uh, like 40 minutes, an hour that um, Rebecca Miller gave me, I ended up having like 15 minutes to shoot. And uh, um, when I told the 
photo editor, they were appalled and furious because the writer wasn't supposed to be there at all. And they just found out where the location was and trying to get more time, elbowed her way in and lied to me. (laughs) And so there's actually a thing where the photo editors try to keep the the writer away from the set. I don't know if you've encountered that. Yeah, Yeah. you're rarely invited on. Yeah. Have you elbowed your way in? No, I don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like to. I found myself intimidated by a lot of the photographers who are the ones that shoot for Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and W. They're big shot photographers, and they're like the superstars of the magazine. Yeah. You know. So, and they yeah. carry a large ego with them? Yeah. And so, no, the writers, very separate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you actually talk about, like, what kind of people you photographed or interviewed? Like, who do you usually interview, Catherine? Oh, well, I started off in fashion magazines. My first magazine job was at Vogue um, in the features department. So I was an assistant. So mostly I helped produce stories about film directors and novelists, you know, dancers and all the kinds of people you see in those magazines who aren't technically in fashion. Um, A lot of profiles of people. And what did you do to... Like, what specifically did you, did you do as an assistant? Like, oh, what was your I job? got a lot of cappuccino. <laughs> um, and I also bought a lot of cigarettes. Back in those oh, days, wow. you could smoke wow. in your office. And I, my boss smoked a lot of cigarettes. Oh, my God. That makes us sound so old. Yeah. 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 I would update the Rolodex and, with a typewriter. And I would do a lot of research. For mm-hmm. Whatever he was writing about, I would research that person, which meant a lot of um, actually sometimes going to the library <laughs> very, old, very long time ago. Um, there was no internet, <laughs> no email at that time. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, that's how I started out as an assistant. And then um, to sort of work your way up the editorial ranks. So at what point do you actually get to do the interviews? Oh, I don't think I was really an editor for so many years. I really only started writing um, in earnest when I got to W Magazine, where everybody was a writer and an editor. They didn't really separate. So do I you was wanna, sort of forced to become a writer. Do you know? Do you want to explain what an editor does and what the difference is between an, a, an editor and a writer? Um, <laughs> the editor is, you know, behind the scenes. So we come up with the ideas for the stories. Um, and we have to keep an eye out on what the news is and what the zeitgeist is and figure out who could write them. Or sometimes you know there's a great writer that you want to work with and you ask them what they want to write about. Wow, it's actually quite different than uh, traditional literary definition of an editor. Yes, magazine editing is is like that. It's the ideas person. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't know that actually. So at what point did you start interviewing people? Ah, well, um, and who are they? (laughs) Oh, well, I, I, I mean, I've, I always did a few interviews here and there, but I guess at W was where I did actually a bunch of celebrity interviews. Mm. One of my favorite ones was, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, who was then making her big comeback. And so she was in Iron Man and she had a baby who was the same age as my daughter. And I went and I interviewed her and Amagansett and we, 
had a lot of mommy talk and she seemed horrified because I didn't, wasn't doing anything that she was doing. Um, <laughs> her child was drinking soy, apple was drinking soy milk and rice milk. I didn't even know there was something called rice milk. And she had her on a special sleep schedule and my child was up at all hours and I'll never forget that. Oh my God, that. can you imagine like comparing your mothering skills yeah, yeah. with Gwyneth uh, <laughs> Paltrow? <laughs> What was the most memorable one? Well, one person that I love writing about was Myra Kalman. Um, she's an illustrator and an artist, and she also writes children's books. And I was just a huge, huge fan of hers from afar. So when she illustrated this edition of Strunk and White's Elements of Style. She did? Yeah, oh, that was that kind of so like, fun. yeah, that she, she was behind that project and I got to go to her apartment, and which is full of all these amazing artifacts. And I heard so much about her life, and I just loved her spirit. And that's sort of what I love about doing what I'm doing, which is like getting to meet people you really admire and getting to know them maybe on a personal level and then getting to write about them. I wouldn't say you become friends with any of these people necessarily, but it's nice to know that you made a connection with them and maybe introduced their work to other people. For those aspiring uh editors and writers. So how much time should I allot before I can get to that point where I can meet these celebrities? <laughs> oh I don't know. I would say the magazine industry is not what it used to be. It's really fallen apart in the last few years. And now if I meet young people who want to go into magazine, I usually try to dissuade them from doing it. Mm. It's not. Well, do you actually meet people who want to go into magazines? Hardly. <laughs> it's not. It's lost a lot of its luster. So now I, I'm a freelance writer. I don't work on staff anywhere. And I focus mostly now on design. I write about art a bit. I write a lot about food. I do some travel writing. Um, it's sort of what su suits my life now. So let's talk about your uh, path. You know, how did how did uh, how did you end up doing what you're doing? So I probably took the most direct and straightforward path of like pretty much any photographer you will encounter. I majored in photography, I graduated, and then I went the whole slogging assistant to all these photographers. And like Catherine, when I first got out of college, I worked a lot in the fashion industry. I assisted a lot of fashion photographers because that's what I was really interested in. I think, um, I mean, it was the height of all the supermodels and uh, um, there was so much money and it was super creative too. And uh, it, there was just so much that seemed so interesting. Um, and I did that for ages uh, until... I ended up, you know, transitioning into shooting on my own, which took a number of years because it's, um, you know, when you're assisting, it's really hard to have your own style and your own outlook on uh, um, what your work should look like, your personal work. So because um, you're seeing imagery and helping people make their vision pretty much every day. So I took some time off where I stopped assisting and I was a color printer. For a while. Um, I have a friend who is a still life photographer, Carlton Davis, and he, his printer left. And so I took over his printing uh, jobs. Well, this is when everything was analog. Yeah. So I'd go into the dark room and I'd get the nags and I would print. And uh, so that got me away from being in the photo studio environment so that it 
became much more solitary, which means that I could work on my own and um, not be influenced by so many different um, outside um, ideas. Can you actually make a living doing that kind of stuff? Uh, I think you could have at one point. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, a lot has changed. Right. So everything has gone digital. Right. I think a lot of the print houses and the labs pretty much closed down. Hmm. So that is not something I would recommend anyone get into uh, these days. But that enabled me to transition into shooting my own work. So name some of the people that uh, you've shot that's particularly memorable or interesting. Or so maybe this is what happens when you get older. I started out shooting a lot of celebrities. And uh, I photographed, um, you know, like John Lithgow, um, Adrian Brody, um, Michael Pitt, Maggie Gyllenhaal, um, mm. James Spader, all these um, celebrities. But the celebrity culture started changing where you couldn't really get the same kind of relaxed access. Like everyone wanted to shoot in hotels or they wanted to shoot somewhere that wasn't their home. Um, and it became like less and less personal. And my whole style and what I do is very personal. Mm. And uh, it just became less interesting. And especially, it's especially really hard to photograph people when they're wearing borrowed clothes because they're sponsored or they want to promote a label. So it's not even their clothes. And uh, you're in some innocuous hotel room and you're trying to get intimate pictures. So at one point, I decided that I didn't want to shoot celebrities anymore that um, I really just wanted to shoot real people. And uh, that was much more interesting. So that's where the people in arts and culture, designers, writers, architects. Um, but also it's really interesting when you shoot like what they call real people. And uh, these are uh, <laughs> people who have somehow like broken through the news barrier and doing something interesting or culturally that, you know. And, and so those stories are always really fun. So it's kind of switching subjects here, but now here you are, you know, doing podcasts for Korean American Story. I know. <laughs> I do think that there's a Korean um, kind of monoculture mm -hmm. that I always felt that I didn't belong mm -hmm. to and I couldn't see myself partaking in. And uh, um, it's this like high achievement. Um, there's a lot of status and... Um, a lot of people at my mom's Korean church, you know, were like that. Or I remember my mom tried to set me up with uh, this NYU film student um, as a date when I was in my 20s. And the guy wanted to see my resume <laughs> before we met. And so it was just, I just didn't feel as a creative person uh, who was one of the, you know, the few people that my parents knew who's who went to art school at my from my generation, that there were people that I could connect with. And so when I met you and uh, um, your community, it was really interesting because it felt so much more diverse. And um, I had much, I could see a commonality and that we could have a conversation. And even if we were different, that um, we could share things. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I think uh, I saw myself um, thinking I could participate in a Korean-American uh, community and not feel like I was compromising who I was and just feeling kind of awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I also avoided joining any kind of Korean social club, 
you know, there are all these things at colleges, Korean club. And even in my high school, there was a Korean American or I think Asian American club. I've always had very good Korean friends and Chinese American friends, but I hate that idea of a, a group or an organization. And the other day I was listening to David Chang's podcast and he told this very funny story about the first time he went to the White House where he was invited because I think the Korean president was there or something like that. And he said, he confessed that he has always um, had a great anxiety entering a room full of Korean people and how he, as he, he doesn't mind Koreans one-on-one, but he sees a room full of them and he starts to sweat. And I listened to that. I thought, that is exactly how I feel. I like Juliana, one of my dearest friends. I have lots of Asian friends. But like once I'm in a room full of Koreans, I feel suddenly uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable and like a fraud, maybe not good enough or Korean enough, or I feel too generic. I don't know what it is. But in the past year or so, working on this podcast, my attitude and my anxiety has decreased. And I think I've kind of come to be more comfortable being in an officially Korean-American society. Yeah. When I first asked you about hosting this podcast with me. I said, no way. <laughs> You're like, I'm not what? comfortable. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that. I'm a fraud. Although I am, you know, I'm interested in these issues, but yeah, it took me a little while to feel I like know, I after, could associate with an, uh, an organization. Yeah. After a few conversations, um, I remember you saying, you know, I think I could see this happening. I I think, you know, and, and I was like, what are you talking about? Of course you can do it. Of course. But I think you needed to see your way into it. Well, you know, HJ is very welcoming. His attitude is not like one from our parents' generation, certainly. And he's very open. And I felt comfortable, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, because... From the very beginning, our mission has been one of inclusivity, and it's explicitly stated in our mission statement. Um, I mean, part of it is just practicality. I mean, like, you know, 150,000 adoptees, right? What are you going to do? Like, ignore them? <laughs> you know, 25% of our population, multiracial people. Like, yeah. I mean, these are, there's going to be such amazing stories. Like, you know, I know people who, you know, whose parents, practically disowned them when they married outside of their race, yeah, you know, yeah. and, but this was, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but now, you know, it's become. Like I mean, well, I think what I like about this organization is I don't get that sense that you join it and you're like, rah, rah, Koreans, number one. That's why. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I like an organization happy to, or, or you know, and uh, like an ethnic group that, is happy to make fun of themselves. Like yeah. the way that, um, you know, a comedian, a good comedian will do, yeah. make fun of their own. I like that kind of humor. It's great to hear you guys say that uh, because, I mean, our goal is to be an inclusive organization that welcomes. And at the same time, you know, we need to be critical of our own communities, right? Just because it's been a certain way for a long time, it doesn't mean it's the way it should be. Yeah. Well, I keep saying that to Catherine and my Korean isn't that great, but... Um, I mean, I can understand enough mm. and I can get by w with enough vocabulary 
But um, when I speak with Catherine and we are, we are at certain Korean events and uh, the person will all of a sudden say something in Korean and you'll say, what is this? You know? <laughs> and, and it makes me realize that from a different person's perspective that doesn't speak the language that it can shut you out of so much stuff, you know. So one so. thing I would like to say is even though I had – no idea what this was going to be like. And I know everyone hates the sound of their voice, and I do too. But it's been really, really wonderful to meet these um, people mm. uh, and interview them, get to know them. We have a specific angle, you know, which is family-based, it's personal history-based, that we end up uh, hearing a different side of some of these people that we've interviewed that I don't think that you get in other interviews. I yeah. And I've been so incredibly thankful how open and um, honest so many of the people we've interviewed um, have been. So if you have anyone that you'd like to see as a guest on K-Pod, um, please email us. Uh, we're open to recommendations and always looking for new people. So our email address is k-pod at koreanamericanstory.org. And we've just launched an Instagram dedicated to our podcast. It's at kpodpod, K-P-O-D-P-O-D. And please follow us. Thanks for listening. K-Pod is a production of KoreanAmericanStory.org. Our editor is AJ Valente, and our executive producer is H.J. Lee. You can email us with comments and suggestions at kpod at koreanamericanstory.org. You can see my portraits of all our podcast guests at koreanamericanstory.org. For news and updates on Kpod, follow Korean American Story on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.